0: You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP. My name is Christina Delange and today I am joined by Dr. Angie Burkout, pediatric infectious disease physician, to discuss COVID 19 vaccinations in children. Angie, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
0: Now, this is a really timely episode. We are recording this on the 5th of January, and we're only a few days out from the national rollout of the COVID-19 vaccination in 5 to 11-year-olds. So a lot of us as GPs are getting heaps of questions now from parents um, around what to do about the COVID-19 vaccination whether they should be vaccinating their children and, you know, maybe some of the myths that they're hearing out and about from friends, family, social media. So really grateful to have you on so that we can try and get that information and help GPs around Australia feel more confident in having those conversations. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start off by talking about what's happening with the vaccination rollout, which vaccinations are currently approved in children and what's the schedule going to look like for them?
1: Currently in the 5 to 11 year age group, the Pfizer vaccine is the only available vaccine currently in that age group. And then in our 12 to 17 year age group, both Pfizer and Moderna are approved with AstraZeneca only approved for 18 years and older. I guess one of the main differences in the 5 to 11 year age group is the dose. So it is one third of the adult dose with the 12 to 17 year age group having the adult dose. And the other main difference is the interval. So with Pfizer in the 5 to 11 year age group, it's an eight week interval. But just remembering you can shorten that interval down to three weeks in certain circumstances. So some of those circumstances where you may consider it is if the child and family are going overseas Or if they have other comorbidities, um, and particularly in light of the current um, increase in cases that we're seeing, particularly if you know that they're potentially going to be more at risk, whereas in children that would be if they have an underlying immunosuppression. Um, obesity is a risk factor, underlying neurodevelopmental disorder, particularly like Down syndrome, seizure disorder. So some of these disorders with comorbidities where we know that they have a higher risk of hospitalisation and potentially intensive care admission, um, you may consider shortening the interval in these
0: cases. And just when you mentioned that about shortening the, the duration in between the two primary doses, there was information Release from Otagi for adults with immunosuppression, they would be eligible for a three dose primary course. Is there any likelihood that something similar would be? Considered for children, or is that really just speculation at this point, and you know, not worth discussing?
1: No, I, I suspect it will. So at the moment, um, a three-dose primary schedule isn't recommended in that five to eleven-year age group. I suspect, suspect though, as we get a bit more data, that potentially in that immunocompromise we will be recommending a three-dose primary schedule. However, that isn't currently the ATAGI recommendation, and I think really why they're holding off currently is we're waiting for this safety data to come out. So already we've got some. really Really reassuring data that's just been um, released by the CDC on the thirty-first of December, which is a really helpful resource, um, which once again just showed that the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, is safe and effective in the five to eleven-year age group, and really that risk of myocarditis is rare. But I think really the precaution at the moment is, from a safety point of view, and just wanting to have a look at some of these potential for rarer side effects um, before they go ahead and recommending a three-dose primary schedule. But I think. Really watch this space.
0: Yeah great thanks for that and I'm going to drill you in just on a little bit of other detail and that is for people or children specifically in this borderline age group so especially those who might be kind of just coming up to their 12th birthday mum and dad don't want to wait till they turn 12 um, they want to start the vaccination what happens if they're on the cusp of their 12th birthday you know they get the lower dose whilst they're still 11 but then eight weeks later they've had that 12th birthday, do they then get the higher dose? You know, what should we sort of be advising parents in that kind of just around that 12th birthday?
1: Yeah, it's a really common question. So um, I think the main thing to reassure families is, um, particularly with higher numbers of cases now, um, I wouldn't be delaying the vaccine until they hit 12 years of age, because really there isn't a big difference between the immune system and an 11-year-old and a 12-year-old that would mean that you're going to be compromising how they react to the vaccine. So in that circumstance you would be giving the one-third of the dose when they're 11 years of age and if they've turned 12 by the time of their second dose you would be giving the adult dose but they wouldn't be at a disadvantage for having a smaller dose with them just turning 12 years of age um, because really we know that um, the vaccine has been you know safe and effective and really there aren't any differences between an immune system of an 11 year old and a 12 year old.
0: Great. Okay, that's really helpful to clarify. So when you talk about efficacy, let's have a chat about what some of the evidence is telling us about the vaccination in children. And I understand we've got some evidence coming out from obviously trial data, but we've got quite a bit of real world data, you know, now as well. So what do we know from an efficacy perspective?
1: So at the moment, um, both Pfizer and Moderna are conducting trials down to six months of age. But in the five to 11 year group at the moment, um, Pfizer is the only recommended uh, vaccine currently. And basically their initial phase three trial, they had over 2000 uh, children who were enrolled. And it showed that the vaccine was both safe and efficacious as well um, against protection of particularly severe disease disease. Now what we have, and you can look this up if you just have a look at the CDC report from the 31st of December, now we have real world evidence, which in, basically involves over 8.7 million doses that have been um, rolled out in this 5 to 11 year age group. And what was really interesting in that report is uh, they had about 4,000 adverse events following immunization, with 97% of those being mild. And the most common side effects that they were seeing is similar to the adult population really is a sore arm, fever and headache being the most common with really serious uh, side effects being less common. Unfortunately, that phase three trial wasn't really powered to show us myocarditis. So if myocarditis is happening roughly at about 1 in 15,000, and we only have 2,000 patients enrolled in that phase three trial, then we were never going to expect to see and be able to correlate the risk of myocarditis. So really, I think this was why ATAGI were initially holding out and waiting for the US data. And in that US data of the 8.7 million doses, there are 11 cases that fulfill criteria for myocarditis. And of those cases, it was similar to what we've been seeing in that later adolescent period. It was dose two with a median age of around nine years of age. And I really think that those sex hormones are playing a role um, in terms of that risk of myocarditis. Um, So once again, just showing that the vaccine is safe and um,
0: efficacious as well. Yeah, great. So what about, Angie, some of those questions around, you know, and I've been hearing this more and more recently, that there's a lot of information around Omicron being a milder disease, um, and the kids especially not necessarily having severe symptoms of COVID-19. And therefore, this kind of idea that, well, why should I bother vaccinating them if what I'm protecting them against isn't going to be that severe or harmful anyway? What's your stance on that?
1: I think with any vaccination or medication, we always have a risk-benefit conversation. I think sometimes, and I've felt this pressure as a doctor, you feel like sometimes you've got to do this hard sell, but really at the end of the day, your job is to talk about the risks and benefits. And so one resource that I think is fantastic, and not necessarily just for the 5 to 11-year-age group, is the NCIRS have released a decision aid, and I think it's just a fantastic way of going through, okay, well, what does COVID-19 cause? what does severe disease look like, what are the risks associated with vaccination, how much protection do I get? So it's a really great resource. So coming back to to children, yes. So um, initially what we were seeing with the previous uh, variants, as we all know, that children weren't as commonly affected. Then Delta came along. We saw that it was more transmissible. And as with any infection, if you have a a proportion of the population that aren't vaccinated, we're going to see higher rates um, in that population, which is what we saw with children and Delta. And we seem to be seeing uh, a similar thing with. Omicron with it even being more transmissible. What we know with the the vaccines previously, so um, AstraZeneca had about a 70% protection against infection, but always the main benefit had been against severe disease with 90 plus percentage protection for severe disease, meaning hospitalisation or ICU admission. And then our mRNA vaccines, so Pfizer and Moderna, around 80% for infection with once again, the main benefit being in uh, severe disease with over 90% protection against severe disease. What we're seeing now with Omicron, and we don't really have any hard evidence telling, well, how much does it protect me against infection? I think what's really reassuring and really has been the messaging all along is that these vaccines, their main benefit is preventing against severe disease. And so what we're seeing is roughly uh, with Pfizer or AstraZeneca, if you've had two doses, you'd have still roughly about 70% protection against severe disease. Uh, And if you've been boosted, that protection increases up to 90%. But then if we take a step back, okay, well, let's have a look at COVID-19 in the setting of a a 5- to 11-year-old child. So, yes, we know that they tend to have a mild illness, which can range from them being asymptomatic um, to having a respiratory illness or even vomiting and diarrhoea. So just remembering that gastro is also a common presentation of uh, COVID-19, with only about 0.7% of those patients requiring hospitalisation. And I think even that probably is an overestimate overestimate um, because a lot of uh, children are having to be admitted for social reasons because their parents have COVID-19 or potentially they are needing some supportive care with you know assistance with feeding or oxygen but of the patients then requiring to go to intensive care that's about half of the 0.7 so it's about 0.4 Point 0.4 roughly requiring intensive care admission and those patients that are particularly going to um, intensive care are children with comorbidities. So I think really when we're counselling you're going to be telling families this information and really the patients where we should be strongly recommending a vaccination that 5 to 11 year age group is particularly children with uh, comorbidities and as I mentioned before the comorbidities that we're seeing so obesity is a really big risk factor. Um, other risk factors, is immunosuppression, um, neurodevelopmental disorders, seizure disorders, uh, Down syndrome uh, particularly and then really any underlying heart or respiratory illness would put you at increased risk of uh, severe disease. But as we all know, and I think we've all seen this firsthand as doctors, yes, it's well and good for me to say 0.7% require um, hospitalisation, but you never know if your child's going to be in that 0.7%. And I think really that's what we need to be drilling um, to families. And I think as doctors, we've seen firsthand families, or you know, children that have gone to intensive care that we never would have expected went to intensive care. So really, I think it's just that risk-benefit discussion surrounding vaccination, which would be our standard approach we would take for any vaccine vaccine or any medication.
0: You know, you only have to talk to a parent who has had a child experience severe complications from any vaccine preventable illness to know the torment that goes on in their minds, knowing that potentially there was something that could have helped to prevent that. So I just think when we have such a safe vaccination in that with good data around safety in that five to 11 year age group you know I'm happy to take for my own kids I know I'm happy to take whatever protection I can give them so that I can sleep better at night knowing that you know any illness that they will have is likely to be even milder with a vaccination on board.
1: I totally agree and i think the other thing to consider is you know as we and this has been the case over the last two years is this is this constantly evolving ball game. and whilst we're dealing currently with omicron which will likely become the predominant uh, strain who knows what the next strain is going to be so um, whilst we're seeing generally the data looks a bit more reassuring for omicron with it being less severe in comparison to delta who knows what the next variant will be like and i think really if it was my child i would be exactly like you said be prepared to take on a vaccine that we know that is safe and effective and would protect my child against severe illness potentially
0: yeah thanks angie and that really um, brings up an important point of that unknown or uncertain future around what future strains will have in store for us and you know so knowing that we want them protected the future strains not just this one as well I wanted to also check with you. You mentioned a couple of patient groups there that might be at higher risk of complications. I also wanted to check, though, are there any groups of patients where we should be cautious with vaccinating? Um, And especially, well, the one I'm going to ask you about is kids who have a history of allergies um, and anaphylaxis, because I know for parents... Um, of children with allergies, they can be very nervous around that. And any other groups that you might think that we should be exercising some caution or having some extra discussions about the appropriateness of vaccination?
1: So the the only contraindication currently is if you've had anaphylaxis to a previous COVID-19 vaccine, which wouldn't be quite applicable for our five to eleven year age group just yet. Or the other um, setting would be if they've had an allergy to PEG, particularly with related to the mRNA vaccines, which will be applicable for children with AstraZeneca only um, approved over 18 years of age. One of the guidelines, which I think is fantastic, is the ASCIA guidelines, which really provides some great um you know, guidance on this in terms of who you may consider giving um, the COVID-19 vaccine or particularly, you know, dose two, for instance, and who potentially you would refer on to an immunisation service. So one of the groups, and I think, you know, always there's someone that you can phone for advice, um, but the ascii guidelines provides actually some really good guidance on this. So one of the other patient groups where you would be cautious and be would be wanting to refer on to a specialist immunisation centre would be if they've had previous mastiffs cytosis requiring adrenaline with anaphylaxis Um, so that would be another a setting but really what we've seen and you know 8.7 million doses in the US that really 97% of the cases that they did report which was 4,000 odd were mild. So really, um, the only contraindication is if you've had a previous anaphylaxis to another COVID-19 or an mRNA COVID-19 vaccine, or if you've had anaphylaxis to PEG previously.
0: Okay, good. Now, I did want to check on some mythbusters. Something that has been commonly coming up with the COVID-19 vaccinations is around impact on fertility and in the pediatric space around puberty and you know yeah in that pediatric setting that myth has been no different there's still been a lot of questions around that um, so what advice are you giving parents at the moment with regards to concerns about some correlation between future impacts on fertility from the COVID-19 vaccination?
1: Yeah, it has been a really common uh, concern. It's interesting. Um, so at the moment, as, as we're all aware, there are no COVID-19 vaccines that cause uh, infertility. And really the data is reassuring. So the initial data that we have is animal studies and it showed no effect once again of um, either your mRNA vaccines or astrazeneca causing uh, infertility and then subsequently we have our, our phase three trials which in the adult data was hundreds of thousands of adults being enrolled in that phase three trial once again, showing that uh, patients were still fertile and there was no causal link uh, causing infertility. And then subsequently from the US and Israel, we also have um, some data, particularly with the mRNA vaccines, um, looking at an IVF uh, population and seeing, comparing those that were vaccinated compared to those that were unvaccinated. And once again, there was no link um, showing infertility. So I think really the data at the moment is reassuring showing no direct causal link. And so really, we can reassure families um, that this is not a risk that they need to worry about.
0: Excellent, Angie, thank you so much. This has been such an informative discussion. Before we wrap it up, though, I did want to ask you about resources. It's always great when we're getting these questions as GPs to be able to guide parents back to some resources for them to be able to refer to. What would you uh, suggest for GPs either health professional resources that they can look at themselves and also anything that they might be able to direct parents to as well. I
1: think that's been one of the hardest things with COVID that we've all been finding is trying to stay on top of all the information and then also trying to fight all this misinformation. I've quickly learned that it's very easy to spread misinformation um, and just provide so much work in order to try and, um, you know, go against it and provide them with evidence. But some of my go-to is, so NCIRS is um, one of them. Um, So they're great. So it's a Sydney-based national immunisation Resource centre that you can use. Essentially, they have all things related to vaccination, particularly as I mentioned earlier. One of the resources I found particularly useful is the Decision Aid around COVID 19 vaccine. So that's a great resource. And they also update it really frequently as well with up to date in- information as well. And a lot of the people that are writing um, those resources are also involved in either the TGA or ATAGI as well. So they really have their finger on the pulse in terms of the information that's coming out. The Melbourne equivalent, so the Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre, MVEC for short, so you can also uh, Google MVEC, and they have also similarly all resources related to immunisation. So I I will disclaim that I am one of the authors and part of the team that writes some resources uh, for this group, and that's headed up by uh, Nigel Crawford, who's also the chair of ATAGI as well. So they also are on social media as well, which I find can be just a good resource uh, for fans families and non-healthcare professionals. So they're on Instagram and Facebook and also on Twitter as well. So they're my two go-to resources that I commonly use. And they particularly also address some of the frequently asked questions. And I'm going to sound like such a millennial, but I'm also on the Twitter bandwagon as well. And uh, I found it the best way to keep up to date with um, the emerging evidence coming out of related to COVID-19. And I think what can be daunting is when you start Twitter and knowing who you should be following, and I think even if you just start with uh, the medical journals that you read, and then also you can just start following some of the key opinion leaders in Australia related to, say, COVID nineteen. So um, oh, there's there's a lot of them, but um, you know, Alan Chang I find particularly useful to follow. He's um, in Melbourne, uh, and then also Fiona Russell, um, and then also the Australian Society of Infectious Diseases. You can follow on there, and then also the Australian New Zealand pediatric infectious diseases um, also have a Twitter page. So all of these things I find quite helpful in terms of trying to stay up to date with the latest resources that are coming out.
0: So it's good to know that there's some evidence-based information on some of these social media outlets, not just the misinformation. (laughs) Well, Angie, that's about all we've got time for today. We will wrap it up. Thank you so much for joining me today. As I mentioned before, it's been a really informative discussion. I know I actually am going to walk away from this just feeling that little bit more confident and comfortable having these conversations with parents. Um, I hope our listeners feel the same too. Thanks again for joining me. Thanks for having me.